Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like playfulness, truth and suicide. I'm becoming slightly obsessed with that last topic because I am at the moment reading Sylvia Plath's brilliant collection of poems, Ariel, which is an offshoot to the Daybell Mid-Month Book Club. Um, mm. it is an, it's a really incredible collection of poems it's a sort of white hot burst of energy in a true sort of true fashion of Rilke it's extraordinary um but also really sad in that such a talent was dashed away at the age of 30 however I am I'm, I'm going off in all sorts of directions but what I mean is we should do suicide or sure. we could do Nails, rails, fails, whales, as in the mammals, pails, as in buckets, and whales, as in loud moaning. However, this is to monstrously digress <laughs> as ever, because we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of honesty is in fact all about Abraham Lincoln a.k.a. Honest Abe. It's about shopkeeping, oath-taking and the Bible, US presidents, Roosevelt, Obama and Biden, and swearing-in ceremonies. And it's about honesty among schoolchildren, truth serum, Pinocchio, George Washington, and so much more. Or that the history of patience is all about the history from below, smells and noises, introspection, Samuel Pepys, Charles Darwin, architecture, and, of course... Dr. Chapman's spinal ice bags. <laughs> I want to do loud wail. What was it? L- moaning or wa- what did you use? Wailing. Wailing. As in, moaning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that would be yes. very good. Um, you're probably wondering who is doing all of this random chatting. My fellow presenter, let's just say that if he was a midnight snack, he would be... Pearl barley soup with piroshki, which are small Russian pies. He would be wild game meat set in aspic. He would be lamb cutlass with asparagus bunches, pastry souffles, poached fruits and ice cream. Yes, he would, of course, be the midnight supper given in St. George's Hall, the Kremlin, to their imperial majesties, the Tsar Alexander III and Tsarina Maria Fyodorovna of Russia. Uh, for the diplomatic corps, senators and generals of the Imperial Russian Army. All this happened in May 1883. He is, of course, a professor extraordinaire of early modern British history. A man so greedy for knowledge and facts, he will stop at nothing to raid the larder of the past. He is James Daybell. Hello, Hello Sam. I think we are so on the same, same wavelength <laughs> today. This is extraordinary. Because the man not sitting opposite me, because we are still obeying the rules during social distancing in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a greed-related historian, he'd only be the exact opposite of King Midas, the mythical ruler 
who was so greedy that he was punished by everything that he touched turning to gold, including his loved ones, including the food on his very plate, with the one exception that everything that Sam Willis touches that is historical turns to gold. So voracious are his historical appetites for the truth. So eager yet selfless is he to get his knife and fork of history into the past. So thirsty (laughs) is he for historical truths. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, your friend and mine, Dr. Sam Willis. (laughs) Very good. Here I am with my knife and fork, ready to get into the past. Yum, yum. (laughs) Yum, yum. Uh, We're doing greed, the history of greed. Uh, it was. Uh, this was my idea. Um, I was flicking through a bit of Macbeth, as you do, as you do, and I was. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about the themes of Shakespearean tragedy, also as you do, and greed is a pretty obvious one, and it's uh, it is truly fantastically explored in Macbeth. So that's how I came across it. And I thought, ah, let's do greed. Oh, I've been reading lots of Shakespeare this week, uh, but about gloves. So um, nothing to do with greed at all. But that's a fascinating way to get into it. I'm just coming into it from the sort of perspective of greed as in greed as a sin. So one of the seven deadly sins. And that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about. And that crops up all over the place in religious writings. We can see it in Dante's Inferno and, and the greedy being punished. Uh, in I think it's the fourth circle of hell and then we can see it sort of actually as a way of of analysing motivations within history so the sort of great greedy people Uh, I was struck by the fact that over lockdown uh, when so many people have been suffering so many people have been laid off the economy is in turmoil that very very rich people have been getting very very much richer and we have increased the number of billionaires in the United Kingdom uh, by quite a lot. Um, so that was what was sort of motivating me to think about greed and also a bit of sort of bit of foodie stuff as well. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of thinking, I read something um, and someone was arguing that a war is a form of organised or is an organised form of greed. And that was I thought was interesting. It made me think about state greed and land grabbing and imperialism and the conquistadors and their greed for Spanish gold. Um, And also, you know, you're talking about sort of economics of people growing wealthy. Um, People often forget, I think, that the, you know, the, 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 what am I trying to say? The, the the search for wealth, the pursuit of commercial self-interest, James. It was actually, it was, you know, largely reviled until not that long ago. And there's a big and interesting change over time there, which we can look at. Um, and I, I don't know what, let, let me start here, actually. You go, I, go I, ahead, I, be my I guest. I asked my, myself by thinking about... Um, this idea of greed and wealth, right? So um, avarice, particularly. So that's extreme greed for wealth and for material great, uh, gain. Um, and other other sins, about, and whether they were a good thing or a bad thing. James, do you think greed is a good thing or a bad thing? A dreadful thing, Sam. Hmm. Do you think it has any, well, any chances of being a good thing? I think I can see where you're getting from. And and often the the argument is that without self-interest and without if we sort of if we don't term it greed in that sort of moral sense and define it as a sin, if basically what you're talking about is self-interest and motivation as a way of propelling people to do things, then, yes, it can be a a good thing. Um, 
but taken to extremes it can lead in lead to massive inequalities you know and people really falling through the system uh, and and just un, unfairness and and really antisocial modes of behavior sure well um i suppose the point is it not it's about whether uh, it's uh, a good thing or a bad thing i suppose as a historian you can just simply observe that this idea of greed being possibly a good thing, has a history. And so I will take you to Bernard Mandeville, who was an Anglo-Dutch philosopher in the uh, 18th century. And he wrote uh, a wonderful little poem called The Grumbling Hive. And he did this, this is in his own words, to expose the unreasonableness and folly of those that desirous of being an opulent and flourishing people and wonderfully greedy after all the benefits they can receive as such are yet always murmuring at and exclaiming against those vices and inconveniences that from the beginning of the world to this present day have been inseparable from all kingdoms and states and ever were famed for strength, riches and politeness at the same time. Time. So what he's doing here, he, he basically it's a, it's a very thinly disguised fable about England. So he was Dutch, but he spent most of his life in England about England of his day. And he argues that the flourishing nation that he lives in thrives because of um, the the vices i mean he he focuses on whoring robbery gaming bribery greed avarice and he argues very strongly that it is the huge variety of vice that actually accounts for the growth of so many professions and the circulation of so much wealth in england at the time um and so it's not just crime, as I say, but I mean, the Commission of Crime alone is an example, provides employment, he argues, for lawyers to jailers, turnkeys, sergeants, bailiffs and tip staffs. I love that. Um, and all those officers that squeeze a living out of tears, he writes. But it's not just that, it's luxury as well. Um, so, you know, that advice at the time was decried from every pulpit. Um, but he also says that there are innumerable professions which cater to those wants, whatever they might be. So I'll read you a bit of The Grumbling Hive because it's wonderful. Um, this is Bernard Mandeville, 1670 to 1733. A spacious hive well stocked with bees that lived in luxury and ease, and yet as famed for laws and arms as yielding large and early swarms was counted the great nursery of sciences and industry. No bees had better government, more fickleness or less content, they were not slaves to tyranny nor ruled by wild democracy, but kings that could not wrong because their, law, their power was circumscribed by laws. Harpers, parasites, pimps, players, pickpockets, coiners, quacks, soothsayers, and all those that in enmity with downright working cunningly convert to their own use the labour of their good-natured heedless neighbour. These were called knaves, but bar the name... The grave industrious were the same. All trades and places knew some cheat. No calling was without deceit. Among the many priests of Jove, hired to draw blessings from above, some few were learned and eloquent, but thousands hot and ignorant. Yet all passed muster that could hide their sloth, lust, avarice and pride, for which they were as famed as tailors, for cabbage or for brandy sailors. Some meagre looked and meanly clad would mystically pray for bread, meaning that by an ample store yet literally receive no more. And while these holy drudges starved the lazy ones for which they served, indulged their ease with all the graces of health and plenty, 
in their faces. I'm nearly there. Just the last couple of of verses here because it's so good. Thus every part was full of vice, yet the whole mass a paradise. Flattered in peace and feared in wars, they were the esteem of foreigners and lavish of their wealth and lives, the balance of all other hives. The root of evil avarice that damned ill-natured baneful vice was slave to prodigality, that noble sin was luxury, employed a million of the poor and odious pride a million more. Envy itself and vanity were ministers of industry, their darling folly fickleness in diet, furniture and dress, that strange ridiculous vice was made, the very wheel that turned the trade it's a fantastic poem, this, and it's a, it's a philosophy that gave a great deal of offence at the time. I think probably gives a great deal of offence now, um, seen by many as, you know, cynical and degrading. So, um, I mean, he's, sorry, he's, let me finish that, James. But the, the final point is that is virtue, he actually flips the other way. He, he actually argues that virtue is detrimental to a state's commercial and intellectual progress. Wow. So and that's it. I'm, you can read that poem and then go off and have ten pints and six Easter eggs and a curry and steal them <laughs> rather than pay for them and then blackmail someone to, to get them to not tell you about it and then you can be proud of yourself. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As a greedy so-and-so. So in response yeah. to Mandeville's obvious satire, I'm going to rail against greed, which, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins. And it crops up everywhere in Christian teachings, in Jewism, in Islam. It, you know, it crops up in, in the Quran. It's in the Gospels. It's there in the in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not cover thy neighbour's house, nor his farm, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. It's in the Christian teaching of early fathers. Uh, so if we look at something like Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, he wrote in that greed is a sin against God, just as all mortal sins, inasmuch as man condemns things eternal for the sake of temporal things. It seems that covetousness is the greatest of sins, for it is written, nothing is more wicked than a covetous man. The text continues, there is not a more wicked thing than to love money, for such a one setteth even his own soul to sale. We can see this played out in creative literature, in, in art in particular. I'm going to talk a little bit about Dante's Divine Comedy here, which is made up in two parts, Purgatorio and the Inferno. So it's basically purgatory, which is sort of walk up a... Up Mount Purgatory and he goes through these sort of different levels and then we descend into the inferno in hell and in both cases we see those who throughout their life have been greedy uh, and often this is related to you know people in the church hierarchy and positions of authority who who um 
Dante sees as a sort of corrupt and greedy being punished. Um, in Purgatorio, uh, they enter uh, the terrace of the avaricious and the prodigal. And basically, the punishment for these people who've been greedy is to lie down on the floor face down um, with their hands and feet sort of tied up. So they're bound, they're bound up and then they are being punished for their desire for material goods, being greedy, their ambition uh, on earth. And then, in the second part of the Divine Comedy, we get into, into hell and we go sort of through various sort of levels. And the fourth circle of hell is where those who are greedy are dealt with. And they are really treated, treated appallingly. Um, and those who are... Those who are included here are clergymen, popes, cardinals, people who basically were greedy throughout their lives, who hoarded their possessions, who weren't charitable at all. And I'll read you uh, from Canto 7, lines 25 to 30. Here too I saw a nation of lost souls, far more than were above they strained their chests against enormous weights and with mad howls rolled them at one another then in haste they rolled them back one party shouting out why do you hoard and the other why do you waste uh, we can also see this in in other writings from the period the reformation uh, theologian martin luther um, condemned the greed of the usurer, so in other words, the money lender. And I quote, Therefore is there on this earth no greater enemy of man after the devil than a gripe money, a usurer, for he wants to be God over all men. Turks, soldiers and tyrants are also bad men, yet must they let the people live and confess that they are bad, and enemies and do nay must now and then show some pity. But a usurer and money glutton, such a one would have the whole world perish of hunger and thirst, misery and want, for as in him lies so that he may have all to himself and everyone may receive from him as from a god and be his serf for ever to wear fine cloaks golden chains rings to wipe his mouth to be deemed and taken for a worthy pious man usury is a great huge monster like a werewolf who lays waste all more than any Caucasus, Gerion, or Antius, and yet decks himself out and would be thought pious, so that people may not see where the oxen have gone that he drags backwards into his den. The real castigation and criticism of the greedy moneylender there. And we can see this going throughout you know, a whole range of writing across time. Um, we can see it in writings of John Stuart Mill and Marx, where it is used to analyse history and analyse the way in which society has been set up. And particularly greed is part of of Marx's model of capitalism, the sort of the, the, the model that he has of sort of striving and wanting to increase all the time. But I think one of the one of the best uh, passages that I've read is in John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism. And I think what's interesting here is the way in which we can we can see greed being analysed as one of the forces that propels history forward. And I shall end this section on this little reading 
The love of money is not only one of the strongest moving forces of human life, but money is, in many cases, desired in and for itself. The desire to possess it, often stronger than the desire to use it, and goes on increasing when all the desires which point to ends beyond it to be compassed by it are falling off. It may be then said truly that money is desired, not for the sake of an end, but as part of the end. From being a means to happiness, it has come to be itself a principal ingredient of the individual's conception of happiness. The same may be said of the majority of the great objects of human life, power, for example, or fame, except that to each of these there is a certain amount of immediate pleasure annexed, which has at least the semblance of being naturally inherent in them a thing which cannot be said of money. So people can be hungry, not greedy, not just for money, but also for fame and for power. So there we are. That That's a, a complete antidote to your, your yep. Mandeville poem, Sam. Ooh, everyone can make up their own decisions. <laughs> no, really they can't. This is, a, this, 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 is, this is not a subjective thing. Um, this, is, this is an ultimate truth. <laughs> An ultimate truth. Okay, um, so what about being greedy for things? You've talked about money. What about coffee? How much coffee do you drink, James? Oh, that's not that's not greed. That's an addiction. <laughs> well, possibly. Well, yes. Okay, in your case, it might be an addiction, but there might also be coffee greed as well. And this kind of links into an idea about the benefits of greed, which I suppose kind of goes back to what I was talking about before. So I want to talk about Honoré de Balzac, the French. Uh, 19th century French author and playwright. Like a, a French sort of Dickens, I think, is probably a good way of, of putting him. Now, I'm interested in him because he combines last week's, or was it last week? Last week's episode on poison with this week's episode on greed because he, he managed to poison himself by being too greedy. Um, and actually, that was something we discussed, wasn't it, in our poisoning episode about how uh, poison is not necessarily about the toxicity of the of the uh, item, but um, more to do with the quantity of it that you consume. And in Balzac's case, it was coffee. This guy was obsessed. It's widely believed he actually died of caffeine poisoning. He had up to 50 cups a day. It's a kind of rough estimate. 50 cups or 15? 50. 50. 50. So, yeah, he had had an an amazing working uh, routine. Um, I reckon, James, you'd like to give this a go um, because I know you like working at night and I know you like coffee. So what he would do is he'd eat a light meal at about five or six in the afternoon and go to sleep. He'd then get up at midnight and start manically consuming coffee um, from from one o'clock in the morning. Usually to eight every morning when he'd stop, but sometimes longer, sometimes for 15 hours at a time. He once claimed to have worked for 48 hours with only a three hour rest in the middle. And not only was he um, utterly committed to coffee, but uh, towards the end of his life, he, he actually wrote about it. He wrote about his um, his addiction and his greed for coffee. And he wrote about it in a way of of encouraging other people to do what he did as a way of inspiring um, and generating creativity. So this is from an essay that was written in the 1830s. Um, 
I have discovered a horrible, rather brutal method that I recommend only to men of excessive vigour. Men with thick black hair and skin covered with liver spots. Men with big square hands and with legs shaped like bowling pins. It is a question of using finely pulverised dense coffee, cold and anhydrous, consumed on an empty stomach. This coffee falls into your stomach, a sack whose velvety interior is lined with tapestries of suckers and papillae. The coffee finds nothing else in the sack, and so it attacks these delicate and voluptuous linings. It acts like a food and demands digestive juices. It rings and twists the stomach for these juices, appealing as a pythoness appeals to her god. It brutalises these beautiful stomach linings as a wagon master abuses ponies. The plexus becomes inflamed. Sparks shoot all the way up to the brain. From that moment on, everything becomes agitated. Ideas quick march into motion like battalions of a grand army to its legendary fighting ground and the battle rages. Memories charge in, bright flags on high, the cavalry of metaphor deploys with a magnificent gallop. The artillery of logic rushes up with clattering wagons and cartridges on imagination's orders. Sharpshooters sight and fire, forms and shapes and characters rear up. The paper is spread with ink for the nightly labour and begins and ends with torrents of this black water as a battle opens and concludes with black powder. Wow! (laughs) That is someone who can write and someone who's had a lot of coffee. Absolutely amazing. He then goes on, I recommend this way of drinking coffee to a friend of mine who absolutely wanted to finish a job promised for the next day. He thought he'd been poisoned and took to his bed, which he guarded like a married man. He was tall, blonde, slender and had thinning hair. He apparently had a stomach of papier-mâché. There had been, on my part, a failure of observation. When you have reached the point of consuming this kind of coffee, then become exhausted and decide that you really must have more, even though you make it to make it of the finest ingredients and take it perfectly fresh, you will fall into horrible sweats, suffer feebleness of the nerves, undergo episodes of severe drowsiness. I don't know what would happen if you kept at it then. A sensible nature counselled me to stop at this point, seeing that immediate death was not otherwise my fate. To be restored, one must begin with recipes made with milk and a diet of chicken and other white meats. Finally, the tension on the harp strings eases and one returns to the relaxed meandering simple-minded and cryptogamous, what does that mean, life of the retired bourgeoisie. And then he ends with a flourish of his pen. But what a wonderful, wonderful essay. And um, you'll not be surprised, but this man was so greedy for coffee, he actually drank too much of it and died of heart problems. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. I'm going to cut back immediately, Sam. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Right, I am going to take you on a journey now. So strap in. Because I'm going to take you from the greed connected to Tudor feasts via a an old time diner in the middle of Michigan to pie eating contests. Would you believe? So I'm going to start with the opulence of the Tudor table at court, in particular uh, at Christmas. Uh, Christmas at the court of, of Henry VIII. Henry VIII, who took to the throne in 1509. Now, what happened was throughout Advent, most people in the Tudor world would have fasted, would have eaten, you know, very, very little. Um, and so there then followed 12 days of feasting. And one Christmas, 
at the court of Henry VIII, he spent a sum of £7,000 simply on dining. Now, to to give that some sort of context, uh, his father had spent £12,000 on the entire royal household for the entire year. So we are talking about a major increase here. And the banquet, the festive table uh, of Henry VIII, would have included all manner of meat. So there would have been turkey, but also beef and stuffed peacock and swan. And then the centrepiece would have been a wild boar or the wild, a wild boar's head. And the king himself would have gone out and hunted the boar with his own spear. So gone out riding uh, with his companions, speared the, the boar, it would have gone to the kitchens, had its head slit off and then been brought to the table. So this is a really extravagant feast. And the Tudor court, through its sort of rituals of, of, of diplomacy and ambassadors coming in, was, was a really, was, a, was a, a court that was basically feasted all the time. And to give you some idea, we've got the records that survive from Hampton Court, uh, which was built by... Cardinal Wolsey, his chief minister in the first half of his of Henry VIII's reign, and then um, Henry uh, got a bit jealous and took it over. But just to give you a, a sense of this, there were the 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 kitchen was expanded to about fifty five rooms. There were two hundred members of kitchen staff. They provided meals round the clock, almost fourteen courses for six hundred people. Um, and to give you a sense of the of the meat coming through, in a typical year, the kitchen served over 1,200 oxen, which are not small animals, over 800,000 sheep, almost 2,500 deer, um, almost 800 calves, um, almost 1,900 pigs, and <laughs> 53 wild boar. In other words, we're talking about almost 15,000 fairly large animals. And if you divide this by the number of people in the court, this would be the equivalent of consuming 23 animals each. Wow. Uh, it's, you know, it's it's in a year, in a year. So you've got time, you've got time to sort of do it. Um, we also have some beautiful descriptions of of feasting that went on uh, in in Cardinal Wolsey's time, so in in fifteen twenty five, this is before Wolsey's demise. Wolsey at, is at his his sort of true height, and Hall in his chronicle describes the following banquet at Richmond Palace in the in the Great Hall. Before the banquet was a pageant performed with a set that looked like a mountain glittering by night, as though it had been all of gold and set with stones at the top. Of that which mountain was a tree of gold, and branches and boughs of which were trimmed with gold, spreading over the mountain with roses and pomegranates, and out of the mountain came a lady wearing a cloth of gold, and children of honour called the henchmen, who were drawn freshly disguised, and they danced a morris before the king, and that done re-entered the mountain, and then it was drawn back, and then a wassail, and the banquet was brought in. 
You can imagine this sort of huge feast coming in. So this is all about greed and opulence. One of the most extravagant feasts was recorded in 1527, uh, hosted by Cardinal Wolsey for the French embassy. And it included beasts, birds, fowls of diverse kinds, personages, some fighting, some leaping, some dancing. There was a whole chess set made out of sugar paste that were given to the, the French guests. And they liked it so much that apparently it was boxed up and 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 sent home with them. And then there were a following following these courses, there was a third course which was sweetmeats and wines and wafers, crisp biscuits and all sorts of things that people would have would have eaten. So a really sort of opulent, uh greedy feast at the Tudor Court. Which brings me to the time when I was a professor in the United States, in, in Michigan. And in the town I was staying in, there was a restaurant called Pixie's Restaurant, which was a lovely kind of old school diner. It was a drive through And you went inside and you could order burgers, these tiny little burgers called Bitty, Bitty Burgers and, and wonderful hot dogs. And I remember on the wall were um, the names of people who had eaten the most burgers. Uh, and I remember just it being, you know, it being an extraordinary amount. Um, and this got me thinking about greed is also about consuming massive amounts of food for fun or for sport. And there is such a thing as competitive eating or speed eating. And this happens in all sorts of places around the world. It's become highly sort of professionalised and people actually train. So did you, did you know they actually train? They're not, they're not enormous people. The people that are really successful at this are actually quite normal sized and quite thin. And it's important that you have a fairly sort of low fat density and you train yourself by swelling and expanding your stomach. And you do that by eating, by drinking a lot of water to make the stomach much bigger and by eating healthy things like salads so that you can then chow down on pies or burgers or hot dogs or whatever whatever it is. It's really big in the USA, in Canada and Japan. Uh, and one of the first uh, contests was a pie-eating contest, uh, which took place in 1878 in Toronto. And it was won by a man called Albert Piddington, um, it, we don't know how many pies he consumed, but he he won a book for this. And um, this set set off a whole sort of spate of of competitions. And one of the one of the most extraordinary was one at Charles Tanby's Saloon uh, uh, about a couple of decades later in 1897, when a man called Joe McCarthy consumed to get this 31 pies in a competition. How on earth do you eat 31 pies? There was also a competition organised at the Manhattan Fat Men's Club in 1909. And this competition was won by a man called Frank Dotzler after consuming, get this, three large pies, 12 rolls, eight and an eighth pounds worth of steak and, get this, 275 oysters, all oh. washed down with 11 cups of coffee, which is absolutely extraordinary. There are professional organisations, uh, the International Federation of Competitive Eating, 
um, the All Pro Eating League. This also appears, it, it's televised on various sort of TV channels. Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest is held every 4th of July and it's televised by ESPN. Um, the annual Crystal Square Off Hamburger Eating Contest is also televised by ESPN. Now, here we are, Sam. I've got some world records for you here. OK, world record for most hot dogs eaten. It is the most hot dogs were eaten on the 4th of July 2020. So last year at Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, um, it was achieved by a guy called Joey Chestnut uh, from the USA, from the USA, who achieved 75 hot dogs. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh, most burgers. Um, the record for the most hamburgers eaten in a minute, this is by the Guinness Book of Records, is held by the multiple record-breaking competitive eater Peter Serowinski, uh, also known as Furious Pete, who ate four hamburgers in the time slot. OK, most pies. There's uh, a new, I, uh, new competition <laughs> for, set for World Pie Eating Championships in Wigan. Um, how long do you think it would take you to eat a meat and potato pie measuring 10 centimetres by 3 centimetres? Um, quite a long time. Well, it took Martin Appleton Clare 32 seconds to devour that. Wow. So there we are, Sam. Competitive <laughs> eating. It's all about greed. And it has a history. Who knew it Does had, a, have a, had history. a fascinating history? Absolutely wonderful stuff. Um, guys, I hope you enjoyed that our episode on greed. Uh, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you like maritime and naval history, uh, please check out my Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. You can follow us on Instagram. You can befriend us on Facebook. You can also check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And we also have a Patreon page if you are, um, if you are charitable-minded. We do anything you could offer would be hugely appreciated and would help us produce more episodes to help spread the word of history. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. Cheerio. Bye, guys. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.